Welcome to the Faith Today podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. Rod Wilson is an author and psychologist who's been a pastor and served as president of Regent College. I would say that in some ways he's a very wise chaplain at large to Christian organizations and ministries, and he also writes frequently for Faith Today. Now he's written a book called Thank You, I'm Sorry, Tell Me More, How to Change the World with Three Sacred Sayings. I'm Karen Stiller, and I had Rod unpack those three important sentences. And as a bonus, Rod changed my life with the technique he gave me to be kind to people who talk too much. Here we go. So Rod, these three phrases, thank you, I'm sorry, and tell me more. They seem like on one hand so simple, but on the other, so profound, if we can learn how to say them. Can you just share why these three in particular are so important? Yeah, I think, Karen, for me, the dynamic that most concerns me is how we define the current problems in the world. I mean, I think a lot of people think our problems are political and other people think they're religious and some people think it's family and some people think it's organizational or economic or social justice. And I think for me, the fundamental problem that I think undergirds a lot of those things is relationships. The notion that we impact each other, to me, is getting lost. Like, I feel like we're speaking in a vacuum very often. We're speaking into cyberspace. And we're really not recognizing that we impact others, they impact us, and we impact each other. And so the three phrases for me capture, and I think, as you said, a simple way, but I think a fairly profound way that when when I say to you, Karen, you impact me, I can say thank you. And when I say I impact you negatively, I can say I'm sorry. And when we recognize that we impact each other, I can say tell me more. So I think that's sort of the undergirding principle for me. It's about how we impact each other. And those three phrases seem to capture it well. Yeah. And just how we speak to each other. Recently, like in the last week or so, we had an incident with our SUV parked in our driveway and getting some damage from an accident that happened. And the other person involved was so instantly angry and defensive, actually, that it was it made dialogue impossible. Um, And we couldn't I had to go write a letter instead because we just couldn't speak civilly to each other, it felt like. And do you think people are kind of more impatient or more angry right now, maybe because they're worn out from COVID or just sort of generally in our culture? Do we know how to talk to each other? Well, I think um, one of the characteristics of burnout just in an individual is that you dehumanize and objectify the other. Say you're working in a hospital or a clinic or a business and you're just really, really exhausted one of the first symptoms that shows up is rather than referring to people by name or taking them seriously personally, you objectify them. You know, you talk about the patients or the suits or the the big wigs upstairs. And I think what's happening in the culture right now is I think we're all pretty weary. And I think the pandemic has facilitated that. I think politics and ideology is dominating right now. And so I think what we do then is we objectify the other and they're just irritants in our lives. They're not real people that have dignity because they're created in the image of God. 
they're just a nuisance. And I think there's a collective burnout or maybe compassion fatigue that's going on right now, which then makes us treat people less than human and with a lack of respect for the dignity they've been given and how they're created. So I think you're right on that. I think there's something in that whole principle of how we deal with people when we're weary. Right, right. And you know, when you were speaking, Rod, I was thinking about all your, I think, vast experience working in different kinds of Christian organizations and ministries. You've had lots of different experiences. And I also have worked in mostly within the Christian space uh, for years. Do you think it's different? Do you think we're better in how we speak to each other? Or do we also have these same issues? Well, I think one of the dangers in Christian circles, Karen, is it's not a new concept, but maybe new nomenclature that's being used now, toxic positivity, that there's a bit of an aura in a lot of churches and a lot of Christian nonprofits that the goal in life is to be positive and to be up and to kind of deny problems or negate difficulties or challenges. And I think what that produces sometimes is a form of Canadian niceness that's intensified by the Christian veneer. And then I'm not sure we really speak with respect and dignity to other people then. We're just trying to be positive and trying to be nice. And sometimes even the hard conversations aren't held. We don't say I'm sorry a lot because we're trying to be really positive and nice and not rock the boat. So I would say there is some issues. I mean, I think these three phrases in the way they express gratitude, remorse, and care are missing even amongst Christians because we too have lost, ironically, we too have lost the dignity of people creating the image of God. We've missed that in our theology. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me that, thank you, I'm sorry, tell me more, are kind of response statements. And I'm thinking you could write another book down the road about initiating statements like, you hurt me, (laughs) I'm angry, (laughs) I have a story to tell or something, because I think you're right. I do think that in Christian environments, we can sugarcoat sometimes for the sake of this peace we're trying to create that we think is supposed to distinguish our environment. And that cannot sometimes be unhealthy. And I think the, you know, the biblical uh, imperative to me is around the word Shalom in Hebrew, which, you know, I think there's many translations, but flourishing is probably one of the best ones. Like what what we want to do in, in our Christian experience with other people is flourish. Uh, we don't want to pursue the absence of conflict or sort of a Pollyannish niceness. We really want to get closer to people and be impacted by them. And part of that can be very negative. I mean, we are fallen image bearers. So I think in the image bearer side, we can impact each other really positively. On the fallen side, we can impact each other negatively. Uh, But if flourishing is the goal, then we do get closer in community and closer relationally. And we're not just running around fearing conflict. Oh, that's so good. Ron, I'd love for us to dig into the three phrases, but I'd like to start with tell me more because it's my favorite of the three. Um, Because I do think there's a deficit in listening. And I think a lot of us don't know how to listen well to other people 
but also sometimes people talk too much. (laughs) And in your book, you use the term over talker, which was a gift to me, um, because I I have not had that term before. So I will use that quietly with, uh, with Brent to talk about people sometimes maybe. Um, So Yeah. yeah, people can be over talkers, but people can also be terrible listeners. So tell us about the phrase, tell me more. Yeah, I love, and I mentioned in the book, Madeline Lingle and her book on the Joseph story from Genesis. She makes this really profound statement to me that because we fail to listen to each other's stories, we're becoming a fragmented human race. And I think that's a really profound statement, very simple words, but it really captures this cultural moment where I think we're you know, we have an increase in information distribution. I mean, social media has been amazing for that. Like we have access to so much data. We have access to so much information. We can go on Facebook and read what somebody says and we can say like or love or whatever. But that's such a different level of discourse than really saying to somebody, tell me your story. Like what's behind what I see? What's the backstory to what I observe? And to take the time and expend the energy to really hear the story. And I would argue it's even beyond the skills of listening. Like the skills of listening can be, you know, you can, somebody who's gone away and done a counseling course for a weekend, you can kind of sniff them out by Wednesday. You know, they've, they've developed some skill and you think, well, it's not really totally inculcated into who they are yet, but, but they learn the skill But I think tell me more is even beyond listening, because what it's saying is I acknowledge that you have a story. There's a narrative behind what I observe, and it's going to take me time to really to really commit to hearing that story. And for me to act on the the assumption that there's a symmetry in all of us, like when you look at my behavior without my backstory, You might misunderstand me, you might misjudge me, you might criticize me, but if you hear my story, then you'll have a much better sense that I'm actually living with some symmetry and harmony in my life. It's my behavior is not discontinuous with my backstory. It's actually quite consistent with it. Now, it may not be good, it may not be right, it may even be sinful, but if you understand the story, then you'll understand me a lot better. And, and we'll be drawn closer to each other. And back to your Lengel quote about the power of stories. When I say tell me more, I think it's hopefully a gift to the talker, but it's also acknowledging a posture of humility, I, I think, on the part of the listener that you have something to teach me and I can learn from you. Tell me more. Literally, yeah. tell me more. Exactly. Yeah, I tell the story in the book, Karen, as you know, of being Bev and I, my wife, were in Florida at a dinner, and I love dessert, and I consider the main course simply to be preparatory and foundational, and I dislike the term main course, actually. I think it's a, it's an oxymoron. So when a, when a waiter or waitress comes to the table and says to me, would you like dessert? I, my standard line is, is the Pope Catholic? <laughs> and, uh, you know, Obviously, I'm making a joke that, of course, like, yes, I want dessert. What a silly question. So this young woman came to the table and cleared our plates. And then she said, would you like dessert? And I said, is the Pope Catholic? And she said, is he? And I said, tell me more. So we had this 20-minute conversation about religion, Catholicism, the Pope, Christian faith. 
Uh, it was an amazing conversation, and it all started with me saying, tell me more. And she talked about her growing up in a home where there was no religion. She had no interest in religion of any sort. She really didn't know who the Pope was. She didn't know the Pope had anything to do with Catholicism. She didn't know what Catholicism was. Wow. And we had this amazing story, and I found it profoundly helpful. Like, here I am in you know, a, a state in the United States that's got a lot of religiosity in it, and here's this young woman who has no idea what any of this is. And it allowed me both to tell, because she asked me some questions, but it also allowed me to listen. And it gave me a fresh sense of there are people walking around who don't know that the Pope is Catholic. Like, and that just helps me a lot because I make a ton of assumptions, especially as a Christian. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. And the fact that she was younger strikes me. And also people who are older, I think younger and older people in our culture are not listened very well to sometimes like there's something in both those groups that we need to pay more attention to. Yeah. Yeah, because I think often what happens, Karen, with these three phrases, and I think particularly would tell me more, is we bring a hierarchy to relationships. We don't see each other eyeball to eyeball. And if I consider you beneath me, you know, maybe it's gender, maybe it's age, maybe it's ethnicity, maybe it's socioeconomic status, I will bring this entitlement mindset that you need to do all these things to me because I'm above you. Whereas if I really understand the power of saying, tell me more, that can, to use the language, that can be up or down or eyeball to eyeball. It's not a power dynamic. Uh, That's why I wish more people in leadership would say, thank you, I'm sorry, and tell me more, because often they expect that in return from everybody else, but they don't provide it to people they see further down the hierarchy. Yes, exactly. Okay, I don't want to leave this phrase without you, also as a psychologist telling me and our listeners a good way to deal with overtalkers, because it can also be hard just to be relegated as a listener to someone who you suspect would tell this giant long story to anyone <laughs> who yeah. would come along. Yeah. How I find that really hard. Yeah. Yeah, it is hard. And I think as you're listening to somebody and your resentment is growing, it becomes <laughs> right. quite, quite exhausting to actually process very well. Well, I think a number of things. I think we often assume with negative behavior that it's intentional and conscious. And when something's intentional and conscious, the the appropriate response is frustration. So when we think this is about willingness, we get frustrated. But when we recognize this may be inability, we can feel sad or compassionate. So some people, for example, have trouble with terminating what they're saying. They just, they don't know how to stop. And that's a lot of it's driven by anxiety. So sometimes anxious people will overtalk, not because they want to overtalk, but because they have trouble stopping because they're so anxious and they don't know how to stop. So I think the first one is distinguishing that willingness versus ability. And that leads to different emotions in us. I think that's part of it. I think another one is to use little tricks and tips to intervene. You know, when there is a pause, jump in. When there is a, you know, a slight, slight pause, try to jump in. 
and say, don't tell me more? Do not yeah. tell me more. <laughs> well, I, but I think some of it is actually jumping in and responding to what they're saying. Okay. And I think if it's a close relationship, actually putting your hand up hmm. and saying, just stop there for a minute. Like you're saying some really important things. I want to respond to what you're saying. And most people will not be offended by that or upset by that because you'll want to engage them. So I think there's a way to put your hand up and say, stop it. You're driving me crazy. But there's also a way to put your hand up and say, just stop for a minute. I Let me respond to that or let me interact with you about that. I think in close relationships, um, an intervention, to use that very heavy word, may be helpful, where you actually have a, you initiate a conversation and say, I've noticed in our conversations, like if we talk about verbal space, that you're talking a lot and I'm not talking. I'd love to know, I'd love you to tell me more about what's behind that for you. And sometimes, I've had this experience, uh, people will say, well, when you don't talk, I get anxious, and so I keep talking. And then I realize they're actually doing it as a response to me, not just on their own, out of their own initiative. So I think some of those things can be helpful. And then I think, you know, there's the old accommodate and accept dynamic. There are some people, this is who they are. My hunch is they came out of the womb chatting, and uh, <laughs> they're going to be like that indefinitely. Okay. <laughs> so the the work needs to be done with us, not with them. Yeah, that is so helpful, and I think you've just changed my life. <laughs> I love the idea of, like, hand up, you know, and also the bigger talk, potentially, of, you know, this yeah. happens, why is that? I think that's really, really beautiful. Thank you, Rod. You're welcome. So now let's move on to I'm sorry. I had uh, an experience in early COVID where I hurt the feelings of a friend of mine who just needed me uh, to listen to her. And I, I wasn't doing that in a good way in that moment. And I had just prior listened to two back-to-back Brene Brown podcasts on how to say I'm sorry. And it was such a gift because what I learned, my takeaway was just say I'm sorry. Don't say, I'm sorry, but blah, 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 blah. Just say, yeah. I'm sorry. And that resonates in your work as well, Rod. Why is that so important? Yeah, I think the the mistake we make with I'm sorry, Karen, is we think that apologies are actually about speaking. And I think I'm sorry is largely about listening because I mean, the words are coming out of our mouth, I'm sorry, but they're in response to the experience of the other. And I would distinguish here between intent and impact. I think sometimes our intent is really good or neutral or positive, but how it's experienced, the impact it has is actually very negative. And so often these I'm sorry, but phrases, I use this a lot in my marriage. It's one of my favorite phrases in marriage. I love saying I'm sorry to Bev but there's a nanosecond between the sorry and a but. Uh, so I speak about myself for the length of I'm sorry, and then I speak a lot about her and the but. <laughs> and the way I do that is I talk about my intent, my the why I did it, why I didn't do this, why she misunderstood that, that's not what I was trying to do, et cetera, et cetera. But what I need to do is stop and say, how did you experience this? What impact did this have on you? Then my sorry is flows out of listening rather than out of speaking. Mm. 
because I find in close relationships, this is another tool I use in marriage. I sometimes will say, I'm sorry to Bev. So she stops talking about what I did. Right, right. Because I don't want to hear about what I did because I function perfectly in the marriage. She's the only fallen image bearer in the marriage. And I don't want to hear her experience. So I say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she talks. And I said, I'm sorry. Like, you don't need to keep talking. <laughs> well, that's not apology, right? That's right, using right. it as a door closer. I have definitely been guilty of that, too. It's like, let's end this. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> and yeah, actually, yeah. I mean, it's a form of lying, isn't it? To, and even, it even when you are too quick to say I'm sorry, which is also a pattern I think I have where I'm... I'm maybe not just trying, I'm not trying to shove something under the rug, but I'm, I'm just trying to bring peace. Like it's like an avoidance technique too. Is, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So um, yeah. how, how can we learn to apologize better then? I, I love your focus on the other. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. I think if we recognize that sorry is less about us and more about the other, I think that's a great place to start. And then it drops the butt. You know, the butts don't enter in a whole lot when you do that. I think the other thing is to recognize that, uh, and here's where I would, you know, talk a little bit about theology. The, the word for repent in the New Testament, metanoia, is actually a word that does not mean feel desperate about what you've done in the past. It's really a word that means look carefully at what you did in the past and make a renewed commitment to have a different future. And so, you know, to summarize that, I think sorry is more about the future than it is about the past. So when, you know, the interaction with Jesus and the woman taken in adultery, it's interesting, you know, Jesus has more conversation with the religious leaders, but when he talks to the woman, he says, go and sin no more. And I think what he's saying there is, he doesn't say to her, now, how badly do you feel about this adultery? And how long have you felt badly about this? And how much have you cried? And how much is your emotion just overwhelming because you did this terrible sin against me? No, he says, have a perspective on that that leads you to move in another direction. So I think I'm sorry is actually quite a daunting phrase because what we're really saying is I'm going to treat you differently in the future. I'm not going to perpetuate the same thing. I feel sufficiently bad about what I've done that I'm making a renewed commitment to be different. And I mean, I would argue that's the essence of discipleship. Discipleship is not feeling, sitting around feeling badly about your sin. Discipleship is actually having a perspective on that and seeking to be a Jesus follower. Yeah. And you know what? I bet a lot of us have definitely heard from our spouse or a good friend, you say you're sorry, but you just keep doing the same thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I have this, I mentioned this in the book, you know, we all have disgusting habits. So uh, we have this interchange, you know, a few nights a week, just before bedtime, I have this very weird thing I do. I don't know why I do it. But I take my socks off about a half an hour before I go to bed. And I pick the dead skin off my feet. Okay, that's and, uh, totally you know, which, disgusting. <laughs> yeah, totally disgusting. Yeah, now it's in print, which is, you know, even more disgusting. And so we have this little interchange, and any of your listeners who are married or in a close relationship, they'll know this interchange. So Bev says, what are you doing? And I say, nothing. And which, you know, the standard lie in a marriage. And uh, she says, you're picking your feet again. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm just rubbing them. She said, no, you're picking your feet. 
and I say, I'm sorry. And then three days later, she says, what are you doing? And I say, nothing. Yes, you are. You're picking your feet. So my sorry is as thin as thin can be. Yeah. I don't mean I'm sorry. I That's me telling her to be quiet and, you know, go back to your computer. Stop talking about me and my feet. Yes, exactly. Wow. She, she puts up with a lot, Rod. She does. She's a patient <laughs> woman. <laughs> that's such a great real life example, though. I think, yeah, we can absolutely all relate to that. So let's move to thank you then in our mini lesson on social graces here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think thank you, it feels to me like thank you is the easiest one to say that it's almost like a reflex. But do you feel it's starting to ebb away a bit in our culture? Yeah, I think, Karen, those of us who are parents, you know, taught our children to say thank you. And so there's a manners category in which thank you occurs that we need to say that. But I think for me, the backdrop of thank you or of gratitude is a culture of entitlement. And so my my briefest summary of entitlement is I deserve it. And so if you carry this sense all of your life that I deserve everything, the, the gratitude quotient is going to be very, very low. And I know in my own life, just as a human being, when, my, when I'm in an entitled space that I deserve everything, my gratitude's really low to people, to God, to circumstances, because I deserve everything. So why would I say thank you? Like, I just deserve these things. And if I turn on advertising, watch commercials, get exposed to marketing. You know, I deserve easy credit. I deserve a loan. I deserve a home. I deserve a holiday. I deserve an increase on my credit card limit. Like it's, I'm appealed to with an entitlement spirit. And I would say, and many others have said this more eloquently than I have, but I think entitlement is now gripping our culture in a profound way. And we play that up that we deserve things and then gratitude gets lost. So my, you know, mundane example I use in the book of, you know, now when I walk into a public washroom, I make a practice of thanking the people who are cleaning the toilets, sweeping the floor, cleaning the basins. And I do that because I've realized all my life, I have a white middle-class entitlement when I go into a washroom. You know, I'm a middle-class white man. And, you know, these poor people who get paid, you know, minimal amount of money to clean the the toilet for me, I deserve that. Of course I deserve that. Uh, they're way beneath me, so why would I say thank you? Then I realize that, you know, fallen image bearers clean toilets, and they need to be acknowledged. But if I'm in an entitled space, there's no way I'm saying that. Yeah, that's helpful. How about the phrase, you're welcome? Because I find, and I think this goes to your point about uh, entitlement, maybe, that sometimes in in today's world, when I give someone something and they say to me, thank you, and I say, you're welcome, it actually feels like I've said something a little bit weird because I think what they're expecting is no problem. It was no problem or no yeah. worries. Um, but when I say you're welcome, I'm actually uh, acknowledging that Maybe there's been some kind of sacrifice or effort on my part, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, like yeah. almost like I deserve their thanks. And I find that very interesting. Like when I yeah. say you're welcome, it feels like I'm surprising the person and I rarely hear you're welcome anymore. Yeah. And I think it is tied with this entitlement issue that 
I've had people say, you're welcome to me as well. And sometimes it feels paternalistic, like they're oh, almost speaking from above. You know, they're, they've done something really special for me and I've acknowledged it. And they're going, well, I'm, you know, I'm really glad you noticed what a great job I did. Hmm. Thank you for saying that. I deserve, I deserve your gratitude. Yeah. You know, so even in the reception of the gratitude, there could be that sense of entitlement going on. Huh. Well, that's so interesting, Rod, because for me, you're welcome. I don't know. There's some mutuality about it. Like, thank you. You're welcome. Like that, yeah. that. So yeah, well, maybe I'm really crazy with my need for your welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so do you yeah. prefer no problem or it was nothing or? I think it depends on what it is. You know, I think, you know, there's some very mundane things like, you know, you hold the door for somebody or you let somebody have a parking spot or something. I mean, I think it's just polite discourse. Yeah. I'm trying to fight in both writing this book and talking about it is to move it out of the manner space, because right. I think uh, these are these issues are deep countercultural issues. Like, I, I mean, that's sort of my big macro concern with the book that thank you, I'm sorry, tell me more, have the put, potential to put a huge dent in the culture uh, and the way the cultural ethos is right now. So but they also can be manners. Like I would like my, you know, I think we'd all like our kids to be saying you're welcome or thank you or I'm sorry or tell me more just for good discourse. Mm -hmm. But they go much deeper as well and just beyond even politeness or social graces. Yeah. And, you know, I think it, those phrases and the attention and the care behind them actually slow us down a little bit too, right? They, they yeah. take away from the rushing through life that we do. And if we're being thoughtful yeah. and mindful about the people we're in community with. Yeah. Cause I think if you, if you bring, I really like the way you said that because I think attentiveness makes you really understand people for who they are. And if you really understand people for who they are, that's a level of attentiveness that's got deep theological, biblical roots to it. I mean, this is really important. Like, we we need to understand who we are in the deepest sense of that. If you're attentive to that, then you look for opportunities to acknowledge that and to express that and to manifest that. And it is attentiveness that's often required in this and not sort of just letting whatever happens naturally occur, but really thinking through, like, you know, I mentioned in the book about parents in the hierarchy of parents and children. All of us want our kids to say thank you to us when they're infant, when they're, you know, the young kids, when they're children, when they're teenagers, even those of us with adult kids. We want them to say thank you. But you have to be attentive to think of, am I saying thank you to my kids? Like, am I expressing gratitude to them? Or is it all the other way? It all needs to come to me. Right, right. And I would say, very importantly, also, I'm sorry to our kids yeah. is super, super important. Because if if the demand is you're a child, so you need to say I'm sorry to me, implicitly what you're teaching the child is that you don't make any mistakes, and mm -hmm. they do. And then what that develops in them is a sense that people who are high in the hierarchy they don't make mistakes and don't need to say, I'm sorry. And so we have celebrities, you know, on television, on the internet, who will just say out loud, I never say I'm sorry to anybody. Like, I just don't do that. And that comes from a notion that I'm sorry should go both ways in the power structures. 
Very, very interesting. Rod, is there is there a last thought you'd like to leave with our listeners? If or let me let me put it this way: Is there one of these phrases that you think is maybe most important for someone to tackle first if they haven't been very good with them? Boy, that's a tough question. <laughs> sort of like what they said to Jesus: like, which is the most important <laughs> commandment? <laughs> Um, I should give his answer. Love God, love others. No, that's too simple. Um, I mean, I think, Karen, there's a dynamic in this where if we see people as valuable, as important, and for those of us who have Christian leanings or religious commitments or convictions, that our spirituality is not just about our relationship with God. It's about our relationship with people. I think then these three together almost are what we're pursuing. And I, I obviously in writing the book, you think, you know, how you're doing in these areas. But I think of the high quality relationships I have in my family or in friendships or church. All three of them are just natural parts of those relationships. We say thank you to each other. We say I'm sorry to each other. We say tell me more to each other. So in a sense, I think when they're all together, like if, if you, you and I have a bit of a relationship, but if our relationship was characterized by those three phrases, it would be a greater sense of connection and friendship. So I think that it's probably not around the one phrase, but just recognizing all three together are going to enhance the quality of relationships. Rod Wilson, thank you. I want to say you're welcome, but I'm not going to. I want you to say you're welcome. <laughs> Well, Karen, thank you. I have a lot of respect for the work you do and in different sectors and spaces. So it's lovely to be on with you. And thanks for shining a light on my book for a little while. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.